Sorry, this, sir. this, um, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, I was this, just uh, pressing record. Okay, that's fine. So if we're talking about psycho, you're talking about um, a, a film uh, in which Alfred Hitchcock is sort of looking over the horizon okay. at a moment where you're between uh, horror movies, between horror eras. Okay. So the, 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 point, the point of the book, the point of my book, Monsters from the Id, is that horror is always a reaction to a revolution. And so the first revolution would be the French Revolution uh, when passion gets out of control. What happens when passion gets out of control? Uh, well, you have to restore order. Okay, but what happens if you don't believe that they're believe in principles of order? Well, that's exactly the situation that Mary Shelley was in. Her father was a revolutionary. Her father was uh, Robert uh, William Godwin. Yeah. Uh, the most famous uh, English proponent of the French Revolution at that time in history. Her mother was Mary Wollstonecraft, who was also a revolutionary and known as the first feminist. And she was raised as a revolutionary, which means that you think all that stuff you call morality is just a form of political control. That's all it is. And all you have to do is break through and you'll be a happy person. Well, she did it. She <clears throat> broke through. Um, Percy Shelley showed up at her father's house and uh, he wanted to restart the French Revolution. He's a younger generation. I think he was uh, 18 at the time. Uh, and uh, he just fell in love with uh, Mary Godwin. Uh, and that's fine. Okay. You fall in love. Young people fall in love. She was 16, I believe at the time. Oh, well, wait a minute. There's a problem here because Shelley's already married. Yeah. And he's left, he left a 16 year old wife at home and uh, basically uh, forget about that because he read Godwin and Godwin said that marriage is the most odious of all monopolies. So, Hey, it's not a big deal. You made those vows, but what the hell? You're a superior being. You understand the revolutionary dynamic. And so you run off with Mary. Uh, now, Godwin wasn't particularly happy about this because in spite of being a revolutionary, he was also a human being. And his daughter is running off with some crazy lunatic uh, aristocrat who carries pistols around, loaded pistols around with him and drinks laudanum, which is uh, opium. So he's not a stable guy. So they run off to uh, Switzerland and have their famous literary party with uh, Lord Byron, who is mm -hmm. famous, a famous poet at the time. And uh, they read Barrowell's History of Jacobinism, which is an, un uh, an underground bestseller at this point. And uh, they, it's the worst, it's 1816, it's the year with no summer because Krakatoa had exploded in uh, Java, spewing tons of ash into the atmosphere, blocking the sunlight. So it's, it's raining all the time in Switzerland. They can't go hiking. So they decide to write stories. And this is where she comes up with the idea of Frankenstein. Yep. Now, yep. Frankenstein, Frankenstein is the doctor. He is uh, the doctor of uh, uh, something or other at uh, the University of Ingolstadt, uh, but that means he's really Adam Weishaupt, who is the head of the Illuminati. Mm -hmm. And that's what 
the Barrowell book is about. It's about the Illuminati and how uh, basically Shelley wants to resurrect the Illuminati and create a revolution. So this is fine. Uh, she's a little bit uh, upset about what's going on there, but not too upset uh, with all the drugs and everything else. So she comes back to England and that's where the problem really starts because at that point, they fished the body of Harry Shelley out of the serpentine. That's Shelley's first wife. She committed suicide because Shelley ran out on her. Well, now at this point, Mary is consumed with guilt and doesn't know what to do because this is all irrational anyway. Why am I consumed with guilt? So horror is uh, uh, the resolution of a parallelogram of forces. So it's so bad that I can't talk about it, but it's so bad that I can't not talk about it. Okay. Uh, and how do you resolve that issue? How do you resolve that issue? How do you deal with guilt when you can't go to confession? Uh, like a Catholic. A Catholic could go to confession. The Protestants didn't have confession, which caused, sacramental confession was caused all kinds of problems for them, emotional problems. Uh, the revival of Methodism in the 18th century was largely a response to the uh, absence of sacramental confession among those people. So she decides to write about it, and it's kind of like logotherapy, and that's where Frankenstein comes from. So um, it's a it, it's lo a logotherapy is uh, Victor Frankl, is it? Right. I mean, it based, all I'm saying is that uh, what Sigmund Freud discovered is if you lie down and talk about it, it often has a good effect. Well, the 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 Catholic Church knew that. That's why they have confession, and they added a sacramental dimension to the fact that you're talking about your sins by saying, allowing the sin to forgive you of the sins. Adam Weishaupt took this uh, idea and turned it upside down. He called it Zeilenanalyse, and Sigmund Freud, who most certainly read Barrowell's memoirs, just Greekified it and called it psychoanalysis. But it's the same thing. So the difference between what the Jesuits were doing and what Freud was doing is that the Jesuits, you have an examination of conscience, you find out your sins, you confess your sins, and the priest says, go and sin no more, and you go out and you try again to live a moral life. The Illuminati turned this upside down and turned what was confession and the examination of conscience into a form of control. So I'm your Illuminati, I'm not your spiritual advisor, I'm your Illuminati controller. I find out what your vices are, and then I promote your vices because I can control you this way. Mm -hmm. That's what happened along the line. Mary is caught up in the middle of this because she's consumed with guilt and she has no way of dealing with it because her father said that marriage is the most odious of all monopolies. Well, why, why do I feel bad then? It's only just a word. Why do I feel bad? Well, she couldn't reconcile that. And that's where horror comes from. It's always inchoate. In other words, it's always takes place after a revolution, after the people act on revolutionary principles and then are consumed with guilt and don't know how to deal with it. So horror, in a sense, gives expression to the thing that you can't say, mm -hmm. which is, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I did that. Because a lot of times people don't even know they should be sorry. They can't connect guilt with action. Yeah. That's the problem. And that's why horror is important. Now, in terms of uh, revolution and uh, Mary's creation of Frankenstein, it, it, the monster gets out of control and you can't control it anymore. Right. 
like the revolution right. in uh, in France. It, it, it eats itself, right. doesn't it? That's right. That's right. Because it's passion. The monster is passion out of control. Uh, if And this is classic uh, Christian uh, psychology. Uh, you know, so if uh, it's classic, a uh, classical psychology, yeah, uh, just uh, if you're talking about uh, Euripides, Euripides was a psychologist uh, who wrote plays about it. And one of the plays is Hippolytus, which is a uh, and the horse symbolizes passion there. Uh, Hippolytus is a man who can control his horses. Hold your horses. Well, he can control his horses and he prides himself on it. And because of that hubris, the gods are upset. And the god uh, Poseidon sends a monster out of the sea. Now, this is like right out of Sigmund Freud. This is the subconscious, this monster coming out of the <clears> sea. <throat> it spooks the horses, and, and Hippolytus is trampled to death by his own horses. Well, that's the Greek understanding, the tragic. Uh, this is before Christianity. Yes. And they felt that there, you, you couldn't control it. You were damned if you did, and you're damned if you didn't. So if you if you did control your passions, you offended one God, and if you didn't control them, you offended another God. So you were always in trouble, and that was the tragedy. But but the they understood that reason had a very fragile and tenuous hold on passion. They understood that completely. And uh, Euripides' other great play is the Bacchae, which is basically about what happens when women leave their loom. They looms and they worship the Asiatic god Dionysus, who was the god of intoxication and sexual excess. So the king Pentheus, who was in charge, responsible for the social order, orders Pentheus to be arrested. Uh, orders, I'm sorry, orders Dionysus to be arrested. Yeah. And Dionysus simply says, well, no. Uh, would you like to see the women dance naked on the mountainside? And he said, sure. Yeah. Because we are all uh, 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 we are all vulnerable to these unruly passions. Yeah. So any man would like to see women dancing naked. Of course I would. And so he goes there. The women see him and then they destroy him. They kill him. Tear him limb from limb. And at the end of the play is his mother holding the the head of her son Pentheus in her lap, still intoxicated. Uh, and uh, her father says, "What do you see?" And he says, she says, I see, uh, it's a trophy. And then she says, look again. And she says, I see horror. I see suffering and I see grief. Well, that's the word horror. Yeah. Horror comes from this sexual passion out of control. That's where it comes from. Yeah. And that was precisely the source of what I'm saying was the real, the, the big wave of horror movies, which began in 78, not in 60, not in 60 with Psycho. Hitchcock Hitchcock was a Catholic. He was he was not a Jew. He was working in a Jewish world. He saw what happened in the 60s. Yeah. We're not going to do Frank Capra movies anymore. They were itching to break the production code by putting sex on the screen. That was all around the same time. And Hitchcock could see the con the consequences of that. And that's where Psycho comes in. So if we say about 78, that would be to uh, Halloween and Halloween. Alien. Uh, yeah. Alien, Alien is 79. 79. So 78, 79. Now what, now, what is happening now? Well, you've had people who are living the sexual revolution. Yeah. So the sexual revolution is in the 60s. You've got a decade now of living according to those principles, and everybody's miserable. 
or not everybody, but I mean, there are a lot of, there's a lot of collateral damage here. And the point is that no one can articulate it. They can't look. Do you think that sex is uh, free love, sexual liberation? Is that a bad thing? No, no, it's a good thing. Well, why are you so, well, uh, it's a good thing. I, I, my girlfriend had an abortion, but it's still a good thing. And I got a venereal disease and my heart was broken along the way, but it's still a good thing. Well, that's co- incoherent. And finally, uh, Alien comes along. Uh, first, it's Halloween. And basically, the message of Halloween is very moral. Basically, if you're a babysitter, if you take off any article of clothing, you're going to be stabbed to death because there's a monster in the closet. That's an extremely moral movie. Yeah. You know, vice is being punished. If I had a sex ed program, I'd show slasher movies as, as uh, for my curriculum. The next movie is, of course, Alien. And that goes up the Alien. level. Right. It's a, this is a much higher level than uh, a, a, a movie that basically set the tone for at least a decade afterwards. It, Certainly the monster. Yeah. The monster. I talked, I talked to Hans Rudy Giger the man who created the monster. And he was annoyed because everybody ripped off his monster for 20 years after alien. It was always the same monster and Giger got no credit for it. Uh, But basically, so what the story here is that uh, you're off in space somewhere, which means you're in the realm of the subconscious and uh, uh, you, you new planet, you're going down. There looks like a spaceship. Actually, it looks like a woman spreading her legs and John Hurt enters what looks like the vagina, okay? Yeah. So that's your clue. You're in the realm of sexuality here. Planet sex, that's yeah. where we are. And uh, he comes back, uh, and then suddenly gets a pain. Oh, no, before that, something attaches to his face. Yeah. And now, if you if you look at the drawings that Giger did, it's not in the movie, but this thing inserts its penis into John Hurt's mouth. So it's oral sex. So the message of alien is oral sex will kill you. Well, this is a reference to Deep Throat, which was the pornographic film that came out in 72, I believe. So seven years earlier. And the message of that movie at the beginning of uh, sexual liberation is oral sex is fun. Well, now at the end of the 70s, the message has changed. Oral sex can kill you. And so Hurt comes back, his stomach explodes. This is an allegory of what sex has become when it's released from the moral order, which is what happened in the 1970s. Yeah. When it, when it gets uh, released from marriage, outside marriage. Right. Yeah. Outside the ra- well, moral order is practical reason. So if you uh, move out of rationality, bad things are going to happen. That, that's the moral of all of these slash, all of the slasher movies, all the horror movies of the 80s. Uh, which followed, but yeah, and and basically these horror movies could be used as as a tool of psychological warfare. Now I would say the opposite. I well, would say that this is the return of the repressed. I was uh, I was Hollywood is promoting morality now. Wait a minute, uh, that's not what Hollywood does. Yeah, the Jews in Hollywood promote the subversion of the moral order. That's what they did. And so they were producing movies that they did not understand. They were producing movies that they did not understand. And the classic example is David Cronenberg, the Canadian Jew who uh, started off in the horror genre uh, about around the same time, around the same time. 
did a movie called Rabbit, and I forget the titles change whether they're in Canada or America. Okay. But anyway, there uh, there's an interview that uh, he did an interview with Martin Scorsese. Now Martin Scorsese is a Catholic. Okay, he's a bad Catholic, but he's a Catholic, and he was actually a seminarian. So Martin Scorsese has never lost contact with the moral law. Now he he acted in a completely immoral way when he lived in Hollywood. Okay. But he still understood that it was wrong. If you're talking about the Jew, a Jew like Cronenberg, uh, who is roughly my generation, I think he's one year older than me at this time, they had lost contact. And if you lose contact, then you do harm. It's exactly analogous to what happened to Mary Shelley with her father, her father saying marriage is the most odious of all monopolies. This group of people, the Jews, took it for granted that sexual morality was some type of fiction that had been exploded by Sigmund Freud and that you didn't have to follow it. But then they saw the consequences and they ended up doing horror movies as a result. Yeah. And, and if you if you point out that they are involved uh, and overrepresented, then you, you, you uh, get labeled, like we saw in that little clip there, or you you can't work in Hollywood anymore because you... Yeah, you'll spoken, never work in this town again. Yeah, yeah because you've spoken the truth. Wait, uh, wait a minute, there's a... Uh, wait a minute, we have to modify this rule. Neil Gobbler wrote a book called A Kingdom of Its Own, How and Jews an, Created Hollywood. An, an empire of their own, yeah. An empire of their own, how Jews created Hollywood. Yeah. Right. And it's okay for him to say that because he's a Jew and he likes that idea. But yeah. then William Cash, an Englishman, like two years later, he says the same thing. And he's an anti-Semite because the Goyim are not allowed to say that because they might mean it in a negative sense. So it's a completely preposterous, hypocritical double standard here. OK, where the ones the, exactly the same statement can either earn you uh, a, a raise uh, if you're working for the Jews or uh, get you banned as an anti-Semite, depending on whether you have a smile on your face when you say it. Yeah. It's like the cowboy movie. The cowboy used to say whatever they say, you rattlesnake. And the other cowboys say, smile when you say that, partner. Yeah. Well, that's what you have to say when you say Hollywood's controlled by Jews. Yeah, because the film, to get back to the film that I watched, and it's uh, produced by uh, Sam Raimi. I don't know if you know him. Uh, yeah, now he's a Jew. Yeah. He's a Jew who grew up in New York, and he did, uh, what was, uh, he He got in early in 1981 with a film called uh, the, the Undead. Evil Dead. Evil Dead, sorry, yeah, Evil yeah. Dead. So he got, yeah, he got in, sort of around the same time. But in many ways, I'm saying it's the exception that proves the rule. I mean, let's face it. If you get produced in Hollywood, if you want to be produced, the best credential you can have is to say you're a Jew yeah. because that gives you the inside track. So it would be obvious, no matter what the genre, the Jews are going to dominate uh, as directors. But even with that, uh, this is not a Jewish genre. This is horror is anti-Jewish as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, it's uh, you'd more it's more English, would you say? Well, look at let's look at Alien. Who was it? Was Ridley Scott? Ridley English, yeah. Uh, uh, Hans Rudi Giger, who was Swiss, yeah. and Dan uh, Dan Bannon, uh, who's American. He yeah. came up with the book. 
So it's it's not Jewish. That's not so, Jewish. So would you say it's basically the Gohim that's been uh, psychologically manipulated and now he's producing his own horror out of his psyche? Right. And not clear. It's not clear that he knows what he's doing. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's the, the interesting thing about art. Yeah. Okay, you can do something without understanding it as an artist. You're not, they're not philosophers, they're artists. And so they can produce something that they don't understand. And I think that not only did they not understand it, but the Jews who promoted it didn't understand it either. They, the Jews didn't understand they were undermining their own sexual revolution by yeah. producing all these horror films. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and the one thing that I always notice is, is the blasphemy. The blasphemy is is just, I mean, in this new film, it's a blasphemy against uh, the Virgin Mary, and it's so overt, and and they just can't help themselves. <laughs> yeah, they can't. You're right. You're yeah. absolutely right. They cannot help themselves. Classic example of what we're talking about is Leonard Bernstein, uh, the big Jewish conductor uh, of the New York Philharmonic, whose culminate, culminating great work is math, the mass the Catholic mass, and it's blasphemous. Yeah. Now, why did he do that? The Kennedys asked him to do that. Uh, uh, the Kennedys are a very powerful American family. Uh, all he had to do was just play it straight, you know, begin with the Kyrie, end with the Agnes Day, but he couldn't do that. First of all, he couldn't do it because he didn't have the talent. And if he, if he did it seriously, he would be ridiculed because he fell short of people like Bach, Beethoven, and Mozart. Okay, that's stiff competition. So, but there's, I think it's also that by this point in his life, uh, uh, Bernstein had given himself completely over to his homosexual impulses and he couldn't restrain the inner Jew anymore. Yeah. And the inner, the inner Jew loves blasphemy. The inner Jew loves blasphemy. And so you're always going to find it as basically it's one of the conditions of modern art. Jewish art, once they do dominate art, they, they commission Pornography and blasphemy. Yeah, That's you, what they do. You, you can see that in uh, Picasso's work. Picasso's work is just this, is, is, is it cubism or it's it's terrible. cubism. Yeah, Cube, cubism is a Jewish creation. Yeah, exactly. Now Picasso, Picasso was not Jewish. No, but if it were just up to Picasso, nobody would know who that guy was. And the only reason we know who he was is because a German Jew by the name of Kahnweiler showed up in Paris in 1907 and created that dance fad known as Cubism. Yeah. That wouldn't have happened without Kahnweiler. And so the point here, if this is that's that's epitomizes the art world <clears throat> in the 20th century, the art world. Uh, the 20th century modernism began with cubism, which is a Jewish creation, a creation of dealers, not of artists. Yeah. And then it continued after World War II when another Jew by the name of Costelli, whose real name was Krauss, showed up in New York and caught on. He started promoting abstract expressionism, yeah. uh, uh, which the CIA got involved in promoting. And then he created pop art. And in 1962, uh, he was selling soup cans. So just as... Conviler created Picasso, Castelli created Andy Warhol. That's the story of art in the 20th century. And it's all downstream from the art that we had with the Renaissance. It's it's downhill. 
Right. That's the topic of the book I'm writing now. I'm writing a book on aesthetics. So so all you have to do, if you look at the 20th century, it's a disaster. No matter where you look, it's a disaster. And it's a disaster because the Jews took over the art world. So I've already explained to you how art painting was taken over by the Jews. In music, it was Schoenberg. Yeah. who basically uh, 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 created eight-tonal music and then 12-tone music as his revenge because his wife left him. Yeah. And so this is his revenge on uh, uh, the tonality that made uh, Western music great. Yeah. An attack on Beethoven. Bernstein, I've already mentioned Bernstein, yeah. okay? Clockwork Orange, another yeah. Jew. That's the early what 70s. Is- yeah. What is what is same, 71? It's the same year that Bernstein does his blasphemous mass. Here's another Jew, uh, Kubrick, yeah. coming out with a film that is obviously was uh, so violent and so uh, oversexed that it couldn't even get uh, played in May. Couldn't play, it wasn't played in England until about 20 years later. Yeah. It was so bad. But uh, it, it, what you don't, what most people don't realize, that film is an attack on Beethoven. It is. Beethoven is all through that movie. Just watch it. And then Beethoven is a Nazi. Well, wait a minute. No, wait a minute. I, as far as I know, Beethoven died about a hundred years before the Nazis. Anybody knew what a Nazi was. So he really wasn't a Nazi. Okay. But the Jew thinks he's a Nazi because he's German. Yeah. And the, But, but the, what you see in this movie by Kubrick is this resentment. It's the same resentment that Bernstein, Leonard Bernstein had when they asked him to do a mass. I can't do that. I'm a Jew. I can't do that kind of stuff. And here's Kubrick basically admitting his own artistic inadequacy. And the proof of that is he has to attack Beethoven. Beethoven, is this obvious? Is it stupid for me to say that Beethoven is one of the greatest composers who ever lived? I mean, do I have to reduce yeah. myself to saying something like that? That's why That's why Kubrick hates him. Because yeah. Kubrick hates, like the Jew, they all resent art that comes from a Christian culture. And which represents the, the, the moral order, which represents right. Logos. Logos, that's yeah. right. So they're that's constantly right. in, uh, everyone has to read the book, uh, Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. They're constantly in battle with logos. And That's right. It's it's it, it has to be pointed out, and because we you can't continue on this trend because uh, you're not allowed to say that they're in in, in conflict with logos, and it, it's just getting worse and worse and worse. Right, right. I wrote that book to remove this discussion from any racial. Uh, considerations. There is nothing racial about this critique. The Jews are the racist in this story. And that comes in with the Gospel of St. John, which is the turning point in human history, when the Jews tell Jesus Christ that we have the sperm of Abraham. Mm -hmm. We're the seed of Abraham. We have special DNA. This is the beginning of Jewish racism, which exists to this day. Okay? And unfortunately, what we had was uh, German racism, uh, beginning with Wilhelm Marr, who created the term anti-Semitism because he didn't like religion any more than the Jews liked religion. He, he was a revolutionary from 1848 as well. Yeah. But this has nothing to do with DNA. Nothing. 
It's got to do with Logos and the rejection of Logos. And what you can see in that book and in the second edition, yeah. three volume second edition, which just confirmed what I my thesis, is that this this rejection of Logos has been the identifying characteristic of the Jew for 2000 years now. Yeah. And it's not going to change. It's not, I'm convinced that this is a category of reality. I think I got to the heart of Jewish identity and it's not going to change until they reject the rejection of Logos. Then yeah. it will change. Yeah, even, uh, do you, you know, uh, Rabbi Newman, Israel Newman, uh, he uh, wrote a book uh, about uh, the Jewish involvement in, in, in Protestant reformations and revolutions. In every, he said, every revolution. That's the way he Europe, said, yeah, yeah. Every revolutionary movement was supported by the Jews. And so in the Jewish revolutionary spirit, I go back even to the Hussites. To the, yeah. Uh, the Hussites, which is 100 years before the Reformation. And the, this is Prague. And that would, Prague was a <clears> Jewish city, still is. And uh, they supported this insurrection against the Catholic Church. They always do. They always will. Yeah, because the, the Catholic Church was the only vehicle that kept them in check for nearly a thousand years. For over a thousand years. Yeah. I'd say for 1,500 years. Yeah, so I exactly. mean, from, 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 let's say, 600 to 1965. <clears throat> and once you, once you say, uh, okay, the Jews are our friends, they take over because there's no one to hold them in check anymore the way the uh, Legion of Decency and the Hollywood Production Code held, held Hollywood in check from 1933 to 1965, roughly. Yeah. Uh, just to switch gears here, um, in my uh, undergraduate degree, uh, we had a, 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 a class on Edward Bernays, the, the, the nephew of uh, Sigmund Freud, Right, and they uh, showed us uh, the the Torches of Freedom uh, posters, and but they presented it as a good thing. But you, in in your book, wait a minute, wait a minute, yeah. what, you, getting women addicted to cigarettes yeah, is that a good showed, thing? How yeah. is that a good thing? Is it is it good because the Jew did it? Does yeah. that because the Jew did it? It's That's ipso exactly facto right. good, even though you everyone's against cigarettes and getting women addicted to cigarettes is not a good idea. Why is this a good thing? Yeah, and 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 but the reason was as you put point out in your book, the American Tobacco Company hired Bernays because they wanted to increase their profits. Right. But they, they never told us that in, 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 in any lectures. Why, what, <laughs> what, what type of education is this? Yeah. this is, well, let me ask you, where did you go to, where was this university? Is it in, in England? England? England, yeah. Uh, well, that just shows you how pathetic the English are. I mean, yeah. it's been a struggle all along. For, for the English to be rational. And this shows you they've completely capitulated to Jewish thought control. That's all it is. That's yeah, they, is. Ha they have. I mean, I was, I was shocked because I had that idea in class. But when I read your book in, in that section, it's, it all of a sudden is this, this blew my mind. It's like, oh, this is what's going on. <laughs> and, and he's the author of uh, the propaganda book. Right. And Edward Bernays. Right. Yeah. Father of advertising, public relations, propaganda, however you want to describe and, and, it. Yeah. And they never tell you that in in the entire three years. They never tell you about propaganda, uh, psychological warfare, 
they just give you these theories of Freud and theories and theories, but no, no uh, mention of psychological warfare. Yeah. Well, I think you should ask for your money back. <laughs> yeah, because you, you can learn more from Libida Dominandi. Amen, brother. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> so thank you, Dr. Jones. Uh, keep this uh, under 40 minutes. It was uh, really good speaking to you and uh, learned a lot again. And uh, hopefully uh, we can speak again in the future. Okay, good. My thank pleasure. Send me you. the link. Send I me will. the link. I will do. Bye. Okay, bye-bye.